Good morning. Uh, my name is Jason Schubert. I am uh, another one of the elders here at Harbor. We're glad you're with us on this Lord's Day. Uh, we have been working our way through the book of First Samuel during our sermon times. Uh, and we have seen that what the book of First Samuel is seeking to do is to prepare the people of God for the coming king of God's own choosing. Uh, this isn't something that's needed just for the original audience of 1 Samuel or the people in the book, but we need it as well. As those who would call ourselves followers of Jesus, uh, the one that all of the scriptures has pointed to as being the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah, God's chosen king, uh, his kingdom is here, his kingdom is coming. Uh, and if we are going to follow and prepare for Jesus' coming kingdom rightly, then we need to learn all that we can about Jesus, our King. And uh, one of the things that Jesus says is that to read the Scriptures rightly always point us to Him and prepare us for Him and for His coming. Uh, and so as we look at 1 Samuel again this morning, that is what we want to do as God's people so that we will be prepared for this coming kingdom and this coming king that will have no end. So if you would, look with me. We're in chapter 19 of the book of 1 Samuel. If you're following along in one of the black Bibles there in your seats, this is on page 242. Um, so if you would, please follow along with me as we hear from the Word of God. And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and Yahweh worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as Yahweh lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. And there was a war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from Yahweh came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre, and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that the spear stuck him to the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michael took an image and laid it on, a, on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He is sick. 
Then Saul sent messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed and the pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Nioth. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Nioth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Saku. And he said, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Nioth and Ramah. And he went there to Nioth and Ramah. And the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Nioth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you have uh, revealed yourself uh, clearly in the scriptures. Uh, that you demonstrate uh, your, your grace and your mercy. You, you show us the redemption that is available for sinners through Christ. We pray this morning that uh, as your people, that you would continue to sanctify us, making us more like Jesus. Sanctify us with your truth, with your word, uh, that Christ would be glorified in and through us until he returns. Accomplish your purposes among us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. In the middle of the pandemic, uh, there was uh, a guy in New York who was stuck in his house. He couldn't get out. He was very hungry, and he remembered that several years ago he had purchased a box of Twinkies. So he went rummaging around in his basement to see if he could find the Twinkies, and sure enough, he found them. But they were a little bit older than he recalled. They were eight years old. Some of them looked like they were still edible. Uh, They weren't. Others were black and beginning to decay, and all sorts of fungus had infested them. Uh, And so he started talking about this and kind of went out on social media. And some people who studied fungus in like West Virginia, these professors wanted to study the Twinkies to see what kind of fungus was growing on it. And it made it all in the news. And Hostess, the makers of Twinkies, came out. And they wanted everybody to know that Twinkies don't have a shelf life that's eight years long. Um, No, it's much shorter. It's 65 days cake on a shelf. For 65 days. I don't know if that reassures me or not. Uh, There's another guy uh, in in Maine, a science teacher. He's been doing experiments with Twinkies for uh, for a long time now. He's had one that's been sitting on the top of his uh, chalkboard in his classroom for the past 42 years. 
Um, it still looks like a Twinkie. It's beginning to slowly lose some of its moisture. Um, it's gotten dusty from years of chalk, but it is still there. It is not rotted. It is not molded. Um, and you can go and look at it. In fact, they keep it in a glass case now and pass it around the school so that other people can see it. Something about a Twinkie and its preservation, the fact that it can stay around that long, Sometimes the preservation of certain things, like a Twinkie for 65 days on the grocery store counter, that length of preservation isn't something that really draws and invites me to want to uh, uh, surround myself with Twinkies. There's something a little bit scary about that length of preservation for a snack cake. But as we're going to see in the scriptures this morning, it's preservation of another kind. That instead of, of, of causing us to maybe raise our eyebrows and, and, and pull, pull away and move back, it's the preservation of God's king and the preservation of God's kingdom that in fact should draw us to him, that should give us great confidence in him that we would always and only want to follow God's King. So we want to look at, at, at that this morning. Kids, I know some of you have been uh, working on keeping sermon notes. Uh, so one thing that you could do this morning is if you want to take note of how many times I say preserve or preservation. I've already said it a few times. I don't know how many times I'm going to say it, so you can tell me, but you can... Just assume I've said it five times already and start your count there. Because I know for some of you that'll throw you off a little bit. But let's, let's start by, by looking and seeing how this passage first shows us that God will preserve his anointed king. Remember what we've seen up to this point so far. Saul was the king that the people chose for themselves. David is the king that God has chosen to be the king and ruler, his anointed over his people. Notice how David, God's anointed, is preserved over and over and over again in this passage. Uh, in fact, we see uh, four, four times that David's life is, is uh, attempted to be taken by Saul. But did you see what happened each time? Look, look in verse 1. Uh, in fact, it, it begins with this, this effort and this plan by Saul to kill David and do away with him. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But what ends up happening? Jonathan, Saul's son, it tells us, who delights in him, goes and he pleads with Saul. He reminds Saul that David is, is innocent. David hasn't sinned. David doesn't deserve death. Look at how he, uh, he brings this up over and over again. In verse 4, "...let not the king sin against his servant David." Because he has not sinned against you, for and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine. And Yahweh worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? Jonathan mediates, enters in, advocates on David's behalf. And it's through this mediation that David is preserved. 
Notice it tells us in verse 6, Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as Yahweh lives, he will not be put to death. But what have we seen about the character of Saul? Any kind of vows he makes are pretty much worthless. And within a couple of verses, he's ready to try to put David to death again. Uh, Look in verse 8. There was war again, and David went out and fought against the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Uh, And a harmful spirit from Yahweh came upon Saul. Remember what we've seen in the past uh, in uh, subsequent chapters. This harmful spirit is God's way of punishing Saul for his rejection of God. So he's continuing to uh, send this, uh, this troublesome spirit on Saul uh, to continue to, to punish him for his rejection of God. And part of the result is that Saul, in his jealousy, because David is getting more success, David is getting more fame, he again tries to pin David to the wall with a spear, it tells us in verse 10. But it tells us he, David, eluded Saul so that the spear stuck into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Two times Saul's tried to get him. Two times David has escaped, it tells us. Uh, In verse 11, it goes and it tells us about this account of Michael and the servants that Saul sends. Saul sent servants, messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him again. But Michael, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window, and again it tells us he fled away and escaped. Again, his life is preserved. Michael took an image, he laid it on the bed, and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. Then Saul sent messengers to David, saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. Again, we're seeing Saul's intention, his heart, his desire to put to death God's anointed one. Uh, But again, his efforts are thwarted, and it tells us that in verse 17, when Saul speaks to Michael, why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? Again, the emphasis is that David keeps getting away. And then this last account in verse 18, David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah, and it told him, uh, and told him all that Saul had done to him, and he and Samuel went and lived at Nioth. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Nioth and Ramah. And Saul sent messengers to take David. Again, this is Saul's effort to try to kill David and put him away. But notice, notice what happens. Uh, the first messengers that, that Saul uh, sends, it says, The Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul so that they prophesied. Their intention is to come to take David so that they can take him back and then have Saul kill him. But God acts and works in an amazing way to actively preserve the life of his anointed one. And instead of these men coming to take David away, the result is when God acts and moves that they begin to announce and proclaim the truth and the goodness of God his power, his might, and worship and praise him. It doesn't just happen once. Saul is undeterred. He sends another group of messengers. What happens? God acts again. They too prophesy, unable to take David. David's life is preserved. Saul sends messengers a third time, it tells us. 
God again actively works. They also prophesy. The anointed one's life is preserved yet again. So Saul again says, all right, I'm just going to have to take it into my own hands. And what does he do? He goes. And the same thing happens to Saul. God acts. He moves. Saul himself is overcome by the Spirit of the Lord, stopped in his intentions, and he too must acknowledge and proclaim the goodness and greatness of God. And the anointed one's life is preserved. Now, just first looking over this, it, it, it might be easy to look at these four accounts and say, well, yeah, it's, it's definitely clear in this fourth one that God's actively working. But if we look at the previous three, I mean, wasn't it just... Jonathan's uh, relationship with his father and his way of just being able to kind of smooth talk and work things out that David's life was preserved. And in the, in, in the second account, I mean, David was a young guy. I mean, he's worth, used to jumping around and avoiding giants and lions and bears and all this stuff. He's already avoided a spear once. Maybe it's just his, his quickness and his skill and his athletic ability. And Michael, she's, uh, she's a pretty sly woman. Um, she's good at making uh, uh, disguises, and so she's able to, through her cunning and her, 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 her quick thinking, to, to, to preserve David's life here. Uh, in fact, I saw this uh, at work in our house this week. I came home for, for lunch on, uh, on Monday or Tuesday, and I walked in the house, and nobody's to be seen at first, and then I walk in the kitchen, Lindsay's in the kitchen uh, helping kind of get the kids' lunch together, and standing over against the wall is Beckett, just kind of leaning up against the wall like this. And so I start talking to Lindsay for a little bit, and then there was something that I needed to say to Beckett, and I reached over and I touched him on his arm, and he just falls flat over on the floor. It wasn't Beckett at all. He had stuffed a pair of jeans with shirts and clothes. He had stuffed a sweatshirt with shirts and clothes, stuck them all in boots and shoved a broom up the back so it looked like he was standing in the corner. And the whole time, I completely had no idea until this dummy fell down on the floor that it wasn't Beckett at all. Now, here I am talking about it and telling you how awesome it was that Beckett made this great, this great thing. But as David thinks back on this account, particularly with Michael, David's recollection of the event isn't to to announce and say how, how cunning Michael is, how skilled she is at coming up with this disguise and hiding him. Look over at Psalm 59. Turn a little forward. Remember, David is also uh, one of the men that God used to deliver his word to his people. And one of the ways that he did that through David was writing many of the Psalms, which come to us as the, the Word of God. Here in Psalm 59, maybe in your, your Bible, especially if you're using one of the black ones, there's a dark title over the top of that that says, Deliver Me From My Enemies. That isn't part of the original scriptures. That's something that the, the editor of this book has put in, uh, the Bible has put in here. But that, that falls underneath it is a part of the original manuscript. We see this as being the Word of God, and it sets for us the context of this psalm. And notice what it says. To the choir master, according to, do not destroy, a miktam of David, 
when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. David, as he reflects back on what was going on when these messengers came to kill him in his home, he is recording this psalm. And guess what? Michael isn't mentioned at all. Listen to what? Just to give you a little bit of a, a taste of it. Deliver me from my enemies, O oh my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie and wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression or sin of mine, O oh Yahweh. For no fault of mine. They run and make ready. Awake, come near to me and see you, Yahweh, God of hosts, our God of Israel. Rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. Here in this passage, he's calling out and he's praying for God to work, to act, to move. In fact, in verse 10, he says, my God and his steadfast love will meet me. God will make me look in triumph on my enemies. David is confident through what God has said and his promises that he will preserve him, that he will protect him. And as David looks back on this event, he speaks of God's preservation of him in the midst of this. Look, as it, even as it wraps up in verse 16 and 17, I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you, for you, O oh God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. As David looks back, what he is, uh, his attention is given, and what his, he focuses on as he looks back in this account is God as his fortress, as God as his refuge, as God as his protector, his preserver. God is the one, because of his covenant promises to David, is carrying out this work. In fact, if that's the way David is interpreting and understanding what was going on with Michael, then we can see all of it as God being the one who is at work. God working through Jonathan to preserve the life of his anointed one. God working through David, being able to evade the spear coming at him to preserve the life of his anointed king. The same thing with Michael and obviously like we saw with the, the men who were prophesying coming. You see, what, what the Scriptures are telling us is that God will preserve His anointed king. But if we know anything about David's life, he ultimately ends up dying. David dies. In fact, the New Testament authors make a point to emphasize that. David's in a tomb. But the promised one, the ultimate heir of David, who God promised would come, who of his rule and his reign, there would never be an end. God preserved him in an incredible way. Even though people sought to kill him and put Jesus to death, he did die, but he didn't see any decay. Unlike a Twinkie. He was preserved. The New Testament makes a point of showing and emphasizing God's work and confirming the reality of God's covenant promises and, and the power and the might and the sufficiency of Jesus that He rules and He reigns now. 
that his resurrection demonstrates and shows that God has indeed preserved him, that promised one that was sent. His kingdom is never going to end. He's ruling and reigning now. He will return. And forever and ever and ever, there will be glory and honor and power given to Christ. You see, God is and has preserved His anointed King. If that's true, how how should we respond? What should be uh, the way that our lives are affected by this truth? Seeing it first beginning to be laid out for us here in chapter 19 of 1 Samuel, but more largely confirmed throughout the rest of the Scriptures that God will preserve His anointed King. Uh, I don't know if any of you have spent much time around toddlers, particularly those from two and under, and ever tried to build a tower out of blocks. It is an exercise in futility. There's many times where I have tried to use all the blocks that we have in this box, thinking that they, that Adelaide, Beckett, Greta, Harris, any of them would think that it would be amazing and enjoy seeing this tower built all the way up to the ceiling. But no. They see blocks as existing for one thing and one thing only, to be knocked down. Rarely could I ever get a, a, above three blocks high before they come and just and knock it over. You, you see, uh, if I'm reflecting rightly on what is going on there, I realize, you know what? This task to try to build my tower is, uh, I just need to, to cease it. I need to abandon this purpose because there's no point. Adelaide, Beckett, Greta, Harris, they are going to demolish it. My tower will come to an end before it even gets started. And here in this passage, we see that 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 is actually the right understanding that the enemies of God should have. In light of the reality and the truth that God will preserve His anointed King, then every single enemy of God's anointed King should cease their own kingdom building should cease their rebellion. Notice uh, how that's, that's shown here. Again, we, we heard this language came up over and over again. Saul is trying to kill David and put an end to him, but what happens over and over? He's preserved. David escaped, it tells us in verse 10. David escaped, it tells us in verse 12. David escaped, it tells us in verse 17. David escaped, it tells us in verse 18. If Saul is rightly applying what he's experiencing and seeing and the truth that's being communicated, what he should do is stop his rebellion. He should cease to seek to put an end to the anointed king of God. Because like trying to build a tower in front of a two-year-old, it is an exercise of futility. It will not happen, Saul. In fact, we even see it uh, symbolized in this passage. Look at what happens in verse, verse 24. When Saul is the one who begins to prophesy, it tells us with this comment in verse 24, and he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? 
Now here when it's talking about being naked, it's not talking about being completely nude with no clothes on. What's talking about is, is Saul stripping off his clothes. He's stripping and taking off his outer kingly garments. You remember that happening before with someone else? Just a couple of chapters ago. Remember Jonathan's response to David was to take off his cloak? to take off his armor and give it to David. It was a a, a symbol of him acknowledging, my kingdom is at an end. I am submitting myself to God's king. And I want to see your kingdom established. It was demonstrated in the removal of his kingly clothes, his princely clothes. Here, God is enforcing this upon Saul as the Spirit comes upon him. And Saul has removed the symbols of his kingdom, the symbols of his rule and his reign. You see, if it's, it's not going to sink into Saul's mind and his heart, it's definitely going to be demonstrated to everyone else around. When you begin to seek to bring an end to God's anointed king and his kingdom, you will not succeed. It may look like you are for a time, But ultimately, your kingdom will come to an end and his will be preserved. So it only makes sense that you should now, while there is still time, cease your rebellion against God's anointed one. In fact, back over to to Psalm 59. That's the same thing David communicates in this psalm. Notice the the things he's, he's talking about his enemies those who are opposed against him. And remember what we've seen is that uh, David's kingdom is God's kingdom. So to be an enemy of God's anointed king is to be an enemy of God himself. And notice what he is praying here in verse 5. Yahweh of hosts, you are God of Israel. Rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. Here, even though Saul and his servants are members of the nation of Israel, the way they are acting is they're acting as those who are completely opposed to God's work in the world. And so they are being put together with all those who are rebelling against God. And David is saying, you're acting treacherously, and he is calling on God to punish them. In fact, even as he goes on, notice the way that he describes God's response to their efforts to build their kingdom tower. Look in verse 8. But you, O Yahweh, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision because God realizes and understands what we many times don't. That our own kingdom building efforts will fail. Notice how David continues to go on. In verse 10, he's praying and saying, My God and His steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look and triumph on my enemies. God's anointed one will come out victorious. In fact, his prayer in verse 11 is, Kill them not quickly, lest my people forget, but make them totter by your power and bring them down, he tells us. Tells, uh, tells them. In verse 12, the sins of their mouths, the words of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride. For the cursing and lies that they utter, consume them in wrath. Consume them till they are no more, that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. 
What is the ultimate result of those who rebel against God's King and His kingdom? It's consumption and God's just wrath for our treachery, for our treason, for our hatred of Him and His King. God's King will be preserved. His kingdom will last forever. Why? Why would we continue in rebellion? Or we might say, but I'm not out there trying to put Jesus to death. I can't even go find Him anywhere. Never have I raised my hand in violence against God's anointed one. This doesn't apply to me. I've never thrown a spear at him. I've never tried to pick up his bed and bring him to my house so I can kill him. But think about it. Do not all of us struggle to want to be the ones in charge? To to shove off and put Jesus' claims to authority in our lives aside? To want to live our own way? That's what humanity's been doing from the beginning. From the fall of saying, not my, not your kingdom, but my kingdom. I don't want you to be on the throne, and I'm going to do all that is in my power to make sure that I stay in control, that I stay in charge. You see, there's a, a little bit of Saul and this rebellion against the kingdom of God in all of us if we're honest about the things that we see of our own hearts and our own desires. And here in this passage, it's calling us who would claim to be followers of Jesus to turn from that rebellion now and look and hope and trust in Christ. But also, it it, it should bring comfort to God's suffering people. Because around the world, as kingdoms, as nations, as teachers, as neighbors, persecute those who follow Christ, who want to seek to to silence and put an end to His kingdom, the confidence we have is that God's kingdom will be preserved. His anointed one will rule forever. And unless those enemies repent and turn to Christ, what will result is their punishment. Their being consumed by the wrath of a just and holy God. If that is the sure outcome, then recognize that all of your efforts at rebelling against Jesus will fail. Your kingdom will never be established. It will always and only look like a crumple of blocks that a toddler has knocked down. Cease rebellion now. Look to God's anointed one, to Jesus of Nazareth, and hope and rest in Him. Turn from your rebellion and cling to Him for mercy and grace. There's another group of people, though, that are spoken to and applied to in this passage. If, in light of God's preserving of His his King and His kingdom, the enemies should cease their rebellion against Him, then God's people should seek refuge in Him. If God will preserve His King, and if God is going to preserve this kingdom forever, then we as His people, in hope and confidence, should take refuge in Him. 
Notice, that, that's even one of the things David is praying as he's recounting it in this psalm. Look again, back in verse 11. One of the things he says is, kill them not. He doesn't want the, the enemies taken away immediately because he wants God's people to learn something from God's work and establishing his kingdom and bringing an end to the other kingdoms. Kill them not, lest my people forget. David wants us, the people of God, to remember the promises, the goodness, the might, the preserving intentions of our God. Remember, one of the things that we've seen as we've been looking through this, uh, going through 1 Samuel, is that the role of king in Israel was to rule over God's people, to protect, to battle on their behalf and defend them, but also he was to be one who modeled what a faithful Israelite looked like. He was to be the chief repenter, the chief worshiper, the, the faithful one before the people so that looking at the king, they would know and be modeled how to follow and walk faithfully with their God. What do we see God's anointed one here doing? How is the king responding? He responds by seeking refuge in the preserving God. Notice, notice again what he says in verse 16 and 17. I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O oh God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. Here, that, that language of steadfast love, David is talking about God's commitment to his covenant promises, to fulfilling his purposes in the world. And notice David's heart response and his reaction is to view this faithful God who keeps every one of his promises, who will fulfill all of his purposes, is in light of that God's preserving work to bring about his kingdom as he seeks refuge in that God. He views him and calls him my strength. He calls him my, my fortress, my refuge. And in light of all that we've seen, we know more than David. How privileged a position do we sit that we can see not only God's work to preserve David, but the ultimate heir of David, Jesus, who would take on flesh, entering into our world, suffering on our behalf. That God is demonstrating His steadfast love, His commitment to His covenant promises to deliver each and every one of His people through preserving His King and His kingdom. In fact, the New Testament Scriptures tell us of this kingdom there will be no end. He's been given dominion and power and authority from this time forth forevermore. Why then would we not like the psalm encourages us, flee to the anointed one who has been preserved as our refuge. Too many times, though, if you're like me, you're seeking and we're going to find refuge and strength in things that aren't going to be preserved, in things that will not last. Has anybody been dismayed over the shape of the economy, or the stock market lately? You've been checking your retirement account? 
You quaking in your boots? Worried? Will you have enough to survive? Are you seeking your refuge in financial stability? In a bank line bottom account that we can see is always teetering and tottering? God has not promised to preserve your 401k or your Roth IRA or your pension. The things of this world come and go. Moth and rust can, will, and do destroy the material things of this world. Why would we seek to find our refuge there instead of the one that God has promised to always preserve? What about in your status? What other people think of you? How much time and energy and hope are you pouring into getting that promotion so that other people are thinking highly of you? So that you can, you can please your parents or your siblings? Or are you, you striving and laboring and your hope is in how you're going to perform in your soccer game this upcoming weekend? And if you lose, that world has come to an end because you're seeking and finding all your hope and your significance on your success in the soccer field. Guess what? Those trophies are going to rust. They're going to break. I just threw 20 of mine in the dumpster when my parents moved up here. They will not last. They will not bring significance. They will not provide you a fortress where you can flee when your world is crumbling around you. There is only one who can do that. It's Jesus. God's anointed one who He has promised to preserve and will preserve forever. As we look at our hearts, as we look at our lives, as we look now where we are fleeing for safety and security, would we not hear the message of 1 Samuel 19? Would we not hear the message of Psalm 59, of all of the Scriptures? Jesus' kingdom will never come to an end. No one will bring an end to it. Babylon has come and gone. Assyria, come and gone. Greece, come and gone. Rome, come and gone. America, too, will come and go, as will every single other kingdom of man. But one will always remain. Let's flee to him now. Let's find hope and refuge and comfort in Jesus, our strength. In Jesus, our fortress. In Jesus, our refuge. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your covenant promises. We thank You that they are always true and faithful and sure. Uh, we thank You, Jesus, that You rule and You reign now. Would our hearts always and only turn to You? May we see the truths and the realities that everything else is just a tottering tower of blocks. But will we cease to the one and only one that will remain forever? For your glory we pray. Amen.